Welcome to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life, a broadcast of Purdue University Extension, where we cut through the hype, explore the science behind food and nutrition, and provide practical tips for incorporating healthful strategies into everyday life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. My name is Tanya Short, and I am joined today by my illustrious co-host, Monica Nagel, and we are both health and human sciences educators with Purdue Extension. If you are not familiar with us, go ahead and give us a Google and check out all that we can offer in your county. We are joined by Dr. Rick Mattis. Dr. Mattis um, has achieved his master's in public health in public health nutrition, as well as a PhD in human nutrition. He is also a registered dietitian and serves as Distinguished Professor of Nutrition Science for Purdue University. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Mattis. Pleasure to be with you. (laughs) So today we are going to be talking about food and eating behaviors and specifically the role of fat um, that it plays in our foods and also in the metabolism in our body and how that plays in our everyday life. Um, But before we jump into your research, Dr. Mattis, I was just learning that, um, so for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar in the nutrition world, um, each, every five years, um, we pull together our greatest and brightest brains in the nutrition realm to kind of look at the research and what it shows us um, is the best way to plan our nutrition and eating habits to promote a healthy lifestyle. And the result of all of this um, brainstorming is the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And we just had a new edition come out in 2020, and Dr. Mattis um, was part of that community review committee and development. So can you tell us a little bit what that process is like or for a lay person to understand what those recommendations really mean. Yeah, sure. Just in happy a broad to. scoping view. Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy to. Uh, so it's actually a two-step process. Um, the uh, government, USDA and HHS, um, come together and support this review. As you said, every five years, uh, they actually alternate um, who takes the lead on that. And in this past, in the 2020 uh, review, USDA was the lead agency. Um, and uh, the charge is to uh, review the current literature on selected topics to provide um, insights to the government so that they can formulate policy. So the first step is to create a committee called the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. And their job is to review the science and to make recommendations that then go to the government, to USDA uh, and HHS, and they're the ones that actually write the dietary guidelines. Uh, The distinction between those two steps is is actually quite important because, for example, in in this uh, most recent uh, round of of, uh, review, some of the recommendations from the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee were not adopted by the the government, and so were not incorporated in this most recent version of the Dietary Guidelines. Uh, One example uh, would be the recommendation for added sugars. I know we're talking fat here, but, but just to sort of illustrate the process, 
um, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee recommended that uh, added sugars be restricted to less than 6% of energy. Um, the prior recommendation was less than 10%, and the government decided, for a number of reasons, uh, to stick with the 10% recommendation rather than the 6%. Um, the Guidelines Committee also recommended uh, reduced alcohol consumption for males, uh, uh, recommending uh, among those who do choose to drink that, that consumption should be restricted to less than one drink per day for both males and females, whereas the current recommendation was two drinks for males, one drink for females, and the government again chose to continue the recommendation for two and one instead of one and one. Uh, so it, it's not a given that what the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee recommends will turn into policy. Um, but the, the point is that science is evolving in the area of nutrition. And so on a regular basis, uh, experts are called together to review the science and to update any recommendations uh, based on, on evolving knowledge. Um, and, and that process just occurred. And so would it be fair to say that part of the reason those recommendations might not be put into policy has to do with more than just what we can measure in our, our strictly um, laboratory kind of science research, but that when you add in all those psychosocial components that maybe they're not feasible or they don't feel like folks could really implement those um do you feel like that's yeah yeah you're you're i think i think you're um on the right track there uh you know the difference between science and policy is that science is the substrate upon which policy is made but policy makers have to integrate as you say not just the science but the practicality the feasibility um, and and to weigh you know the costs and 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 the availability of foods and and many other factors and so there isn't a straightforward um, uh, line between the two uh, policy policy is is a bigger broader sort of issue and and in the cases that I recommended that that I just reviewed for you where where the recommendation was not adopted I think there really was a sense that um, Americans, for example, are, are eating about 13% of energy uh, from added sugars now. The goal was 10% and the committee recommended 6%. Well, 10% was already an aspirational goal. 6% would have been even, even more dramatic a recommendation. And while the committee thought that it sent a good message that, that we really should be cutting back on that, I think the policymakers were saying, Let, let's set a policy that uh, puts an end goal more within reach. Yeah, and so my takeaway that I would want to impress upon the layperson from that, I think, is twofold. One, that science is evolving, so we're always learning new things um, There's, you know, as we implement that, and that it's there's so many pieces that go into human behavior and something that is an essential part of life like eating. Um, and so that's a really good lead in, I think, um, to your research, um, because it does 
um, as I understand, take in a lot of those different components that is not just about the chemical formula structure that might be in a particular food that would be health promoting, but how does that really play in a holistic perspective in our food and our eating behavior? So can you talk to us a little bit about your research and how all of those come into play? Yeah, uh, I, I guess I would characterize our research is um, uh, at the interface of a number of different sciences. So we try to integrate sensory science, how, how things taste and smell and look, um, food science, what, what are the components of the food system, nutrition science, so what are the physiological responses to actually ingesting foods, um, psychological sciences, what are, what are the factors that determine decisions about consumption? Um, and so it, it is um, sort of trying to integrate all these different sciences to better understand human feeding. Wow, that's, that's a lot. So let's kind of break that down a little bit and look specifically at some of the research you've done with fat. Um, it's sensory impacts um, and et cetera, some of the things that you had shared with us um, before this session. Can you dig into that a little bit for our listeners? Okay, sure. I, I think there are a couple of dimensions here that we, we may want to uh, mention. Uh, the first is um, uh, maybe a more psychological, uh, uh, behavioral uh, dimension, and that is uh, we have vilified fat for a long time, right? We, we, we've thought that fat was really dangerous in the diet, it, it maybe contributed to, to certain cancers, it was problematic for heart disease. Um, it was um, a contributor to positive energy balance and weight gain. And, and for any number of reasons, we have been um, uh, really critical of fat in the diet. But I want to emphasize that, that nutrition is much more about balance rather than absolute amounts of any one nutrient or food constituent. And it's really the balance of all the nutrients, including fat, that determines the healthfulness of, of a diet. And just for example, let me, let me just kind of enumerate some of the beneficial roles that fats play in our diet. Uh, first, they are integral components of every cell in our body, right? So all our tissues are made of cells. And each of those cells has uh, nutrient needs and it has the need to export waste products and, and products of its metabolism. Um, so there is a flow into and out of all cells. And that is determined to a very large degree by the composition of the cell wall. What what encloses that cell. And fatty acids are part of that membrane. And so they determine how flexible it is and what receptors are present and just what nutrients are allowed to flow in and out. So very fundamental to just the health of, of, of our cells and, and how they respond to different stresses, um, whether it's eating, exercise, exposure to a toxin, you name it. Um, Second, um, they're precursors. These fats are, are precursors 
to a whole host of metabolic pro, uh, compounds in, in our bodies that regulate everything from blood clotting to blood pressure to immune function to the synthesis of our reproductive hormones, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, um, uh, to hormones that influence calcium levels and so have an impact on bone health. Um, so, I mean, we have essential fatty acids. We aren't, we aren't capable of synthesizing all of the forms of fats in our body. Um, and, and so we have uh, an absolute need to obtain some of these uh, from our diet um, because they play all these, these different kinds of roles. They're also carriers for fat-soluble vitamins, right? We have a, a whole array of vitamins that we, we know we need for health. And four of these, uh, A, D, E, and K, are fat-soluble. Um, and because of that, they would not be easily transported in our blood, right? Blood is primarily water-based. And, and so uh, fats are necessary for the absorption and for the transport of these fat-soluble nutrients uh, from our diet. Uh, fourth, uh, they are thermally insulating. They help us preserve our core body temperature. Uh, not, a, not a trivial contribution. They're, they're like wearing a coat <laughs> to, to help us uh, uh, maintain an optimal body temperature. They are a shock absorber. We engage in uh, activities that uh, result in banging around somewhat and getting poked and, and so on. And uh, the fat that uh, lines our, our body helps to absorb the shock so that it's not transmitted directly to our vital organs. So that's important. Uh, they are also obviously a substrate, an energy substrate. They provide energy. They're the most energy dense form uh, uh, in our diet. Uh, they provide about nine kilocalories per gram as compared to carbohydrate and, and protein, which contribute only about four. Uh, so they're a very rich source of energy, and um, I know there's a big concern about uh, overweight and obesity these days, but we do need energy to survive, and, and fats uh, are an uh, important contributor to that. And, and finally, they're a source, as you said at the very beginning, uh, of sensory stimulation. They are... Um, uh, a component of foods that transmit information by the textural properties that they contribute. They, they add creaminess and viscosity uh, to foods, uh, properties that most people find very pleasant. Um, they, they also have an odor, particularly when they're rancid, uh, that may be a warning signal that you don't want to eat this. Um, and our work uh, has suggested that we may actually detect them by the sense of taste as well. Uh, and that is not a widely held or widely, widely recognized view. Um, most people think that, that we detect fats based on their textural properties. Uh, and as I said, in rancid fats by, by odor. Uh, but we think that, that we actually taste them as well and that that taste has important nutritional implications.
So there are a host of reasons that, that we should actually be very favorably inclined towards fats uh, and, and not just put them on the list of avoid them at all costs. We need them. So Dr. Mattis, I don't want to um, skip over this taste component because that's one of my favorite things that you talk about um, with your research is the, the taste of fats and just and sensory in general with um, any of our macronutrients. But I want to go back to, um, you were talking about our fat soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, E, and K. Um, I don't know if our listeners all know what those, the importance of those vitamins in our, um, in our nutrition is because, you know, people are like, oh, we need our vitamins, um, but we don't always know what they are. So um, I didn't prepare this, so hopefully I say them all correctly. Um, but vitamin A is very important for our eyesight, um, our carotenoids and everything. Um, and so in order to make sure when we eat our carrots and our orange vegetables that we're always told to eat, uh, we need to make sure we're having some fat consumption, not necessarily with them, but in our diet um, to make sure that vitamin is working properly. No, can, I, can, I just, can I just embellish that? Yeah, um, so without fat, we would find it very difficult to absorb those carotenoids from the diet. So eating, uh, eating a carrot is, is worth doing, um, but if it's consumed with a fat source, so for example, on a salad with salad dressing, the absorption is enhanced. So, so the fat helps transport that vitamin A into the body, as, as well as I said before, transporting it within the body. So, yes. Yeah, and I think Dr. Campbell, one of your colleagues, did some research on that, didn't he, with the, and we're, we're trying to get him on here too to talk to us, so um, yes, but having that salad dressing with our salads can help. <laughs> right, he, he did do that work, and it's an interesting story, yeah. yeah. Uh, so then, um, Vitamin D is oftentimes found with calcium because uh, vitamin D and calcium need each other to be absorbed in our bodies, and that helps with our bone strength. Um, but vitamin D got a lot of popularity this past year too, I think, for immunity um, and the role it plays in um, supporting our immune systems and helping um, to fight off disease. Uh, anything else vitamin D is important for that I'm missing? Yeah, well, there, there is a relationship with, with cancer risk as well. Uh, vitamin D is, is a very, very active area of research. Uh, there, there, there are any number of uh, health issues that, that um, may be related to vitamin D status, and, and so uh, I think there's still a lot to learn about it. Uh, but, but you're absolutely right, it's vital in terms of bone health. And, and we have a crisis uh, of poor bone health in this country. So it's very important that people get adequate levels of vitamin D. Sure. And then vitamin E is our um, antioxidant vitamin. So we're always trying to get all those antioxidants in our um, body to help uh, boost that. And if we're not eating our fat with those antioxidants, again, we're missing out on that nutrient. And then finally, vitamin K is our blood clotting vitamin to help us um, with any wounds and that sort of thing. So I just wanted to kind of make sure everybody knows what these soluble vitamins are really helping us with. And, and you know, I think you, uh, part of the important message there uh, is that we need a diet that is varied um, so that we get all of those different vitamins. As you pointed out, they each have a very different role to play. And so it's important that we have the diversity of foods that supplies each of those nutrients 
and ideally we do it through food rather than through supplements because with supplements you can get excessive levels of intake and as i said earlier nutrition is really about balance and so when we obtain these nutrients through foods rather than through pills it's much more likely that we'll get the appropriate balance of them i want to interrupt dr mattis for a moment and dig a little deeper on the role of dietary fat in our diet Dietary fat and cholesterol have been in the spotlight when it comes to nutrition for nearly 50 years. Most of these recommendations suggest we should limit our fat intake because it is unhealthy, but all fat is not created equal. Yes, fat is the most energy dense macronutrient we consume, and this needs to be considered when it comes to managing our lifestyle. What this doesn't mean though, is that we need to replace all fat with a lower fat or fat alternative option. When we consume fat, it is broken down in our digestive system to fatty acids and glycerol. The body uses these to form other fats in our body. When it is stored, it is in the form of triglycerides. Many of these fats are essential for our health. We know that we have saturated, unsaturated, and trans fats. All of these have different properties in our food and impact our health differently. The fact about fats is we can't live without them. First, fats supply our body with energy, something we need to keep us alive. And as Dr. Mattis mentioned, fats regulate our hormones that are involved in muscle contraction, immune function, blood clotting, and blood pressure. We also discussed their important role in absorbing fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. I wanna talk a little bit more about fat's role in our brain and eye development. <clears throat> our brain is about 60% fat, meaning fat from our diet is crucial for brain development and function. If you are pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant, Fat is instrumental in developing the brain and eyes of our infants. Fat consumption remains important for adults and children to have normal growth and development and maintain healthy skin. We should concentrate on consuming essential fatty acids, linoleic acid and omega-6, and alpha-linolenic acid, which is an omega-3. These are considered essential because your body lacks the ability to create them out of the other fats you have been consuming. If you are breastfeeding, your infant is able to get all of the essential amino acids needed and formulas are supplemented with these essential fatty acids. If you eat a variety and well-balanced diet, you should be consuming the essential fatty acids from foods like vegetable oil, canola oil, and soybean oil, nuts and seeds as well. Fat is often touted as being bad for our heart health, but actually fat can play a role in promoting immunity and reducing inflammation, ultimately reducing the risk of heart disease. The essential fatty acids that you consume are able to be converted to other types of fats in the body, having their own unique health benefits. Omega-3s from fish are very important for heart health, and while your body can convert essential fatty acids to DHA, which is the fat you are getting from fish, it does it very unproductively. So eating fish at least twice a week is recommended to meet your DHA needs. Finally, fat plays a role in satiety. We are more satisfied from the flavor of food that contains fat, allowing us to feel full longer because we are seeking that mouthfeel and flavor of fat-based foods. I know you have all tried eating something that didn't contain enough fat in it, and then all you do is continue to seek that fat-based food. Not consuming enough fat can actually be detrimental to our health. One, we won't be able to absorb those fat-soluble vitamins. We've already talked about several times. Second, if we aren't getting enough polyunsaturated fat, this could actually negatively impact our heart health. And finally, the lack of those omega-3s and fat-soluble vitamin E may be linked to cell membrane damage and a disruption in cell function. 
While fat has a very important role in our diet, it is still the number one nutrient of concern for heart health. So instead of focusing on reducing total fat in our diet, recommendations have actually been modified to reduce solid fats or the saturated fats in our diet. Research is finding that replacing the saturated fat with an unsaturated fat is the most beneficial to improving our heart health. Well, I think you guys have heard enough of me talking for today. So if you will, join us again for our next episode where we continue our discussion on fat with Dr. Mattis. I know you won't want to miss that discussion about his research on how we can actually taste fat and how that plays out in our body. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram at Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Until next time, remember to ask questions, challenge the myths, and stay true to you.